You know, sometimes over the past uh, years, I've had the opportunity to talk with people, you know, customers at the store, people at airports, and others about the Bible. And I probably don't do it as well as uh, Brother Glendon or Brother Leonardo, both of whom are much more expert than I am. You know, when you talk with people about the Bible, you sometimes get some interesting responses. You know, there are people who say, for example, the Bible says so-and-so. But when you query them about this gently, it turns out that they actually haven't read the Bible. A neighbor or an uncle or a sister had told them what the Bible says, and sometimes it's not even correct. Then there are, other, there are others who may have read the Bible or may not have read the Bible, but if they read it, they perhaps read it quickly or read it a long time ago and uh, don't quite get it correctly. They misquote from the Bible. One that I hear quite often is, spare the rod and spoil the child. Now, where in the Bible does it say, spare the rod and spoil the child? Nowhere. <laughs> what does the Bible actually say? Does anyone know that verse off by heart? Proverbs 13:24: He who spares his rod hateth his son but he who loveth him disciplines him promptly. Or how about money is the root of all evil? Well, actually, it isn't, is it? So, what does First Timothy say? Love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And it goes on to say, for which some have strayed from their faith in greediness and pierced themselves with many arrows. Then there are some I come across who actually misunderstand completely particular Bible passages. Have any of you ever met someone who tells you that the story of Lazarus and the rich man proves that there is a hell in which sinners will burn forever? Yes, okay, but it doesn't. It's a parable. The lesson is something completely different. A couple of years ago, I was discussing the Bible with, uh, with a young man. He was probably in his 20s. And we got to talking about diet and unclean foods. And then he said to me, the Bible says we can eat anything. And guess what was the example he used to prove this point? Yes, Peter, remember the vessel coming down three times, the sheet with the unclean animals on it? We, we talked about that at Sabbath school this morning. And he completely missed the whole point because he should have read the rest of the account and he would have seen what that story was actually about. Now, now, people who have these misunderstandings can usually be drawn back to the truth of the word. But then there are some people who take Bible, biblical verses completely out of context. And sometimes I find they are not so interested in any truth. They just want to make a particular point. And the point that they wish to make is more important than what the Bible actually says. The Adventist scholar and writer George Knight tells the story that Adolf Hitler had two favorite Bible passages. One was our scripture reading, Romans 13, 1-7, and the other was 1 Peter 2, verses 13 and 14, which reads, Therefore submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors, 
as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers or the praise for those who do good. And one of these two passages had to be preached every year in every church in the Third Reich. And, of course, there were observers on hand to make sure that the correct interpretation was provided for those passages. So what was the correct interpretation? Well, according to Hitler, all must know that his authority came from God, that God had appointed him, and that he was God's agent, and therefore he claimed whatever he did was right. It's such interpretations that make Romans 13, 1-7 so controversial. In fact, it's so controversial that some writers claim that Paul didn't even write it, that somebody else wrote it at a later date and just inserted it into the book of Romans. Some others claim that it has nothing to do with governments and civil authority. It's all about church authority. They're much in the minority. And still others claim, such as the, uh, the philosopher Karl Barth, that we're talking not just about human beings, but behind the angel that stands behind every individual human being. Generally agreed, however, that the verses refer to civil authorities. And the text has caused some controversy because of what the standalone text, Romans 13, 1 to 7, is interpreted to mean. Many interpreters claim that it provides a blanket instruction to obey civil authority at all times without exception. One Church of Christ pastor wrote, there is no doubt that the governments are going to do things that are immoral and sinful, but none of these things change these commands. As a result of such interpretations, Romans 13, 1-7 has been used to justify all kinds of government actions. As the Christian writer David May notes, Romans 13 is often the go-to proof text for urging compliance with and allegiance to government authorities. Or, as the well-known theologian Oscar Cullman puts it in his book, The State in the New Testament, few sayings in the New Testament have suffered as much misuse as this one. As soon as Christians, out of loyalty to the gospel of Jesus, offer resistance to a state's totalitarian claim, the representatives of this state are accustomed to appeal to this saying as if Christians are commanded to endure and thus abet all the crimes of totalitarian states. This passage has been used to justify not only the Nazi system, but slavery in the United States, both generally and with specific reference to the Fugitive Slave Act, which called upon people to return runaway slaves to their rightful owners, and it's been used to justify apartheid in South Africa. Most recently, it was used in June when U.S. Attorney General Jeff Sessions referred to it in order to justify the policy of separating parents from children at the U.S.-Mexico border. The problem with such interpretations and appeals is that they look at the passage as if it stands completely alone, completely devoid of any context whatsoever. Thus, these verses have been torn kicking and screaming from the context in which Paul wrote. So we need to understand that particular context. There are two basic contexts that we should be looking at. There are others, but the focus here is on these two. 
These are the historical and cultural setting, first of all, in which the text is situated. Then there is the literary context, the relationship between the specific verses we're looking at and the verses before and after, the chapter in which it is found, the message of the entire book, in this case the book of Romans, or indeed the message of the entire Bible. Here is a simple example of literary context. Some of you may remember that years and years ago, when we used to go to the movie theater to watch movies, uh, long before Netflix came along, that uh, there would sometimes be newspaper advertisements about the particular movies. Remember when we had newspapers as well? And they would read something like this. Incredible, amazing, highly recommended. Oftentimes, white letters on a black page. So there you have the words, but what's the context? Where's the context? There you go. That's the context. In other words, the movie is not incredible, amazing, and highly recommended. It's incredibly bad, amazingly wasteful, and it's highly recommended. Don't go see it. So that gives you an understanding when we talk about context. So you see that context is important. And every Bible verse needs to be examined in context. So let's look at the context related to Romans 13, 1 to 7. First, why would Paul even want to mention civil government? There are two points we need to take into account here. Paul had been preaching in the eastern part of the Roman Empire for some 20 years before writing the book of Romans. He would have been well aware of the fact that for all its issues and problems, Pax Romana provided general peace and stability in the Mediterranean region and provided many services, such as the road system that facilitated his ministry. He would also be aware that if the Roman peace ended, the empire would be fragmented and would descend into chaos and anarchy. In fact, this is precisely what happened when the Roman Empire fell, overrun by varied groups of tribes, and then descended into the Dark Ages. As we know as well, Paul was a keen student of scripture, so he would have been well aware of the sin and debauchery recounted in Judges 19 to 21, when, as Judges 21-25 points out, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. To help ensure that people followed God's wishes rather than their own, some kind of civil structure was required. Paul would also have been aware from his own experience that the Roman Empire provided some form of justice. And while at times he suffered from it, at other times he benefited. In Acts 19, when the Ephesians were full of anger against Paul and his companions, and might even have lynched them, there was a city clerk who told the crowd, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open, and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. Acts 19, verse 38. We should also remember that Paul, as a Roman citizen, also had the right of appeal to the emperor, which he exercised. So in short, people could benefit from the presence of the Roman legal system. But Paul had another motive for referring to governments in the book of Romans. 
As we know from history, the Jews at the time were a particularly rebellious people. They chafed under Roman rule. They longed to be delivered from their oppressors. As we see from the Bible, they were in constant anticipation of the Messiah who would deliver them from the Romans and establish their rightful place as God's chosen people. And even after they rejected Christ as the true Messiah, they continued to anticipate that a real Messiah would appear. They were constantly rebelling against the Romans. In the Gospels, mention is made of Barabbas, a likely insurrectionary who was given his freedom when the crowd chose to free him rather than Jesus. In Acts 5, Gamaliel refers to two rebellions against Roman rule, one led by Theudas and one by Judas the Galilean. The historian Josephus refers to two others, including the Egyptian. In fact, in Acts 21, verse 38, the Roman commander asked Paul, Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? At that time period, there was also a group known as the Zealots, whom Josephus called the fourth sect following the Pharisees, Sadducees, and Essenes, who sought to incite people to rise up against Roman rule. And we should note here that one of Jesus' disciples, Simon, was a zealot, which is further evidence that people from all backgrounds can serve our Christ. In addition to the zealots, there are also the Sicarii, possibly an extremist printer, splinter group of the zealots who carried out targeted assassinations of Romans and their Hebrew sympathizers. Sicarii means uh, uh, dagger holders. They would like to go into crowds, come up behind their victim and stab him to death and then escape in the crowd. Since there were many Jews in, the time, in Rome at the time that Paul wrote, it is likely that the attitude of discontent was present there as well. And since most of the early Christians in Rome were Jews, it is also likely that some of these anti-Roman sentiments had seeped into the Roman church. At that time, Christians were still considered to be a Jewish sect. So any unrest and rebellion amongst the Jewish community might have had unfortunate repercussions for the Christians, since any repression could have been directed against them as well. Paul wanted to avoid this, so he wanted the behavior of Christians to be distinct from that of Jews. If the Jews resented and despised Roman rule, Christians should accept it. If the Jews complained and grumbled, Christians should hold their peace. If the Jews were unhappy about paying taxes, Christians should pay them gladly. If the Jews sometimes assassinated Roman officials, Christians should show them all respect. In all ways, Christian behavior should distinguish them from Jews so as to avoid the kinds of outcomes which were to take place against the Jews a few years later in 70 AD and again in 117 AD and again in 136 AD. In fact, the Romans got so fed up with the Romans in 136 AD that they banished all of them from the Holy Land, and you really didn't have too many Jews living there until after the Second World War. But let's look at the literary context of Paul's verses on civil authority. We first have to look at the audience to whom he is writing, because Paul was writing a letter 
a letter to a particular audience at a particular time in a particular place. He wasn't writing a treatise. He wasn't writing a polemic. He wasn't writing an academic analysis. He wrote to people who had particular problems. It's a letter. The letter was written to believers in Rome, and believers had their particular issues. In the early years of the Roman church, the majority of members were Jewish. But in 46 AD, Emperor Claudius expelled the Jewish Christians from Rome for causing too many disturbances and riots in the name of Christus or Christ. The Jewish Christians only returned to Rome in any numbers after the death of Claudius in 54 AD. During their absence, the number of Gentile Christians grew and the Gentiles assumed leadership positions in the church. On their return, the Jewish Christians found themselves in a minority. And many of the Jewish Christians still held to their beliefs regarding their place as the chosen race, the need for strict dietary practices, and the need to observe special holidays, holy days. Many of the Gentile Christians, on the other hand, disdained the old customs and beliefs. So there was a lot of disunity and antagonism within the church. This was of a concern to Paul. The unity of the Christian church was of importance to him. And this concern was one of the reasons, though there are others, that he wrote to the Christian church in Rome. In Romans chapters 1 to 11, Paul gives a comprehensive exposition of his theology, which had built up over his many years of preaching. I'm not here to discuss the book of Romans. Uh, we've studied Romans before. We will study it again, and you can read it. It's a very interesting book and probably takes a lot of reading to understand it. But because I'm not discussing the book of Romans, I'm not going to touch on the issues of his the theology. However, in chapters 12, Paul moves from theology to the practical applications of that theology. From Romans 12.1 to Romans 15.13, Paul provides guidance, advice, counsel, and direction for the believers in Rome. Romans 12, 1-2 provides the underpinning for what Paul says in the next chapters. You, the individual believer, have received the mercies of God. That's a linkage to his theology. So you are transformed. So you need to transform your behavior. You have salvation. So you should act as if you have salvation. In Romans 12, verses 3 to 8, Paul focuses on believers in the church. Don't think too highly of yourselves. And please, use the gifts that each and every one of you has for the common good. Romans 12, verses 9 to 16, hones in on loving one another. Love, as Paul wrote, must be without hypocrisy. Christians are to love one another with brotherly love, to contribute to the needs of others, to pursue hospitality, to bless those who persecute them, to associate with people of low position, to be not conceited. This, Paul says, is how we should deal with everyone, believer or non-believer. Romans 12, 17 to 21, deals with overcoming evil with good to practice what is right before all men, to live in peace with others, and not to avenge ourselves. We need to leave that to God. 
Romans 13, 1-7, our scripture reading, is about our relationship with government, to obey authorities, to do good, because that is what right, and to pay what is due to those authorities. Romans 13, 8-10, returns to the theme of love. We are to owe nothing to anybody except to love one another. Romans 13, 11-14, reminds his audience that since salvation is near, they should no, give no thought to things concerning the flesh. Romans 14, 1-12, tells the listeners not to be judgmental of those in the church who may not agree with them on various issues not central to the Christian message. Romans 14, 13 to 23, tells the listener not to judge because we need to be considerate of the consciences of weaker neighbors in the church. And Romans 15, 1 to 6, calls on believers to build up one another so that all can glorify God with one voice. Romans 15, 7 to 13 expresses the hope for peace and joy for all, both Jew and Gentile, and that all accept one another as Christ accepted all of us. Well, I've summarized and condensed this, uh, so if I've left things out, forgive me. So what do we have here? Why have I outlined the verses in chapters 12 to 15? Simply this. We have Paul's guidance on how Roman Christians should behave. Notice the progression. It starts with the individual. It then moves to fellow church members. It then moves to other people. It then moves to government officials. And then it refers back to brothers and sisters whose views may differ from our own. It is an all-encompassing love for all. As Paul states, love is the fulfillment of the law. So Romans 13, 1-7 cannot be separated from the words that precede it and follow it. It is part of a continuum of guidance from Paul. These verses can be seen instead as the fulfillment of love at a more corporate level. As George Knight, the Adventist theologian, puts it, Thus Paul is not seeking to cover every situation involving every government. Rather, he is, rather than speaking to every possibility, he presents the case in which a legitimate authority makes appropriate demands on its citizens. So it's in this context that Paul's message to believers in the Roman church needs to be looked at. So what does it tell us if we look at all these verses together and not isolate out this particular text? Well, we are told to live in loving and respectful ways, letting our love be genuine and extend to all, including authorities. We are to live peaceably with others, including authorities. We are to bless those who persecute us, including authorities. We are to obey authorities, pay taxes, complying with official edicts. And what does it not tell us? It does not tell us that governments are always right. It does not tell us to follow statutes if they are morally problematic. It does not tell us that government takes precedence over family, church, and social relationships. It does not tell us that the reign of Christ is accomplished through worldly rulers. 
Paul Anderson, a professor of biblical studies at George Fox University, stated, when taken together, these five paragraphs, because some Bibles number them in paragraphs, call for one thing, living in upstanding ways, gracious, nonviolent, orderly, loving, Christ-like, in order to witness compellingly to the way of Jesus Christ in the world. So there are two lessons that we need to take, I think. First, whenever we are tempted to use the Bible to support a particular position, exercise caution. Every passage is part of a larger picture, and few verses in the Bible can stand on their own without knowing the context. And secondly, whatever we do, do it all for God. Thank you and amen.